Hi, I'm Jeff Ebert, and welcome to my podcast, Gospel Wabi Sabi, which loosely translated means God's good news for imperfect people. This is season one, episode seven, and we'll be focused in on the Gospel of John, chapter three, verses one through 15. And the theme is, is it possible to begin again? Now, just think about how important the answer to that question really is. Is it possible to make a fresh start, to change your life, to recalibrate the trajectory of where your life is headed? Or are we all victims of karma, victims of our own bad choices and actions, kind of stuck in a rut of our own creation, never able to rise above? What would a person have to do to really change their life? Well, if you're thinking about only superficial change or change to the exterior of life, all you have to do is look at the trending reality TV shows or internet influencers who would tell you that, yes, you can change your life. The answer is simple. You need a makeover. Get some plastic surgery, a nip, a tuck, an implant here, freeze some fat over there. You'll be all set. Maybe upgrade your wardrobe, throw out those old tired clothes, get some new bold threads, get a new hairstyle, a new car, a renovated house. You'll be a new person. People will love you. You'll be more popular. You'll be happy. Sounds simple enough, but the statistics on plastic surgery recipients tell a different story. One study I read said that one year later, 78% of people who have had plastic surgery are dissatisfied with their new body. That's why there's such a big repeat business for plastic surgeons. People see something else that they don't like, and then something else, and then something else, and then they end up with a nose like Michael Jackson. It's actually pretty easy to change the outside, not so easy to change within. And that's what today's story is all about. Is it really possible to begin again? So let's get ready to hear our scripture from John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Hey, remember to follow Gospel Wabi Sabi on whatever podcast platform you're using. And if it's helping you grow closer to Jesus, please share it with a friend this week. You can be a positive influence in someone else's life.
We could rename this story Nick at Night, but I think that's already taken. Nicodemus, this man who came to see Jesus under the cover of darkness, he's a Pharisee. That means, first of all, he's one of 6,000 Jewish men in ancient Israel who were totally dedicated to completely keeping the laws of Moses in the smallest details. They literally had thousands and thousands of minuscule ways to obey every aspect of the Jewish law. They wrote down all those thousands of rules in a book called the Mishnah. The Mishnah had 24 chapters just on what you could or could not do on the Sabbath. The Pharisees, they were serious about following the letter of the law. They thought keeping rules was the way to please God. And you know, there are a lot of people today who still share that mentality. They may not be called Pharisees, or they may not have a rule book the size of an encyclopedia, but the mindset is still there. Follow the rules, and God will love me. Break the rules, and God will hate me. Follow the rules just enough to get me into heaven. But how do I know how much rule keeping is needed? You know, I'd better keep trying or I'll lose my spot in line for heaven. You know, a lot of people still misunderstand the gospel that way. Nicodemus, he was also a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council. That was a group of 70 people who acted as the Supreme Court of the Jews. They were the most esteemed, most respected people in the land. And Nicodemus, he'd made it. I mean, he was in the very inner circle. Very influential guy. He had power and prestige. He was at the top of the pyramid. And so he had the world by the tail. And so why is he sneaking around under the cover of darkness to talk with Jesus? Well, one of the official duties of the Sanhedrin was to check out false prophets. So I'll bet Nicodemus had been in the crowds with other members of the Sanhedrin, other Pharisees, when Jesus spoke. He was one of those Pharisees who was always hanging out on the edge, in the background, listening evaluating, judging. Most Pharisees were listening to see if Jesus made a mistake in his teaching, listening to hear if he said something wrong, something against the law, something that they could use against him as an accusation. One slip of the lip, that's all it took. But I think Nicodemus was actually listening, and something touched his heart. He listened, and instead of wanting to trap Jesus, he felt compelled to go deeper. And so he came at night, to see Jesus. Maybe he didn't want anyone to see him talking with Jesus this way, didn't want his peers to know, didn't want to risk his reputation, didn't want people to start, you know, gossiping, or maybe he came at night because he wanted uninterrupted time with Jesus, sort of private time, which was only available to them at night. Uh, Either way, Nicodemus came to Jesus in darkness and had a conversation that changed his life forever. It's always interesting to see the way Jesus dealt with people to help them discover truth. That's the wabi-sabi part of these conversations that I just love in the Gospels. The way Jesus talked with people. There's a rhythm to his conversation, a rhythm. Time and time again, you can see people approach Jesus, and at first, they're left like scratching their heads. They ask what they think is a simple question, and Jesus answers with some impossible statement something that takes them by surprise. And it's more than just the Socratic method of answering questions with a question. Jesus has this way of answering with the unexpected, kind of catching people off guard, and it shakes them up. Jesus doesn't ever give easy answers. And I think that's part of his, I don't know, vetting process. The ones who are truly seeking will ask again. Those who aren't truly seeking will just drop out. But the ones who are truly seeking will ask again. 
And Jesus comes back oftentimes with an even more complicated answer that gets him even more confused. I mean, he really makes people work for it. But then finally, if they stick with it, he follows up with a beautiful explanation of the answer. And so Nicodemus starts the conversation very respectfully. Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God was not with him. Now, he's not just blowing smoke at Jesus. What he's doing is actually kind of asking very nicely, do you really claim to be the Messiah? Nicodemus doesn't use those words because that's not how people talked in that part of the world. In his Middle Eastern way, he's not asking questions directly, but kind of obliquely. They talked in kind of a roundabout manner, and he's asking, are you the Messiah? And so that's a serious question, but Jesus doesn't really want to get into a theological debate here. Instead, he looks right into the heart of this man. He wants to get right into Nicodemus's life. Jesus is really concerned about this elderly man's personal welfare. It's one of the beautiful things about Jesus. There's not one person, not one single person who escapes his notice. Jesus is concerned about all of us and all our deepest needs, no matter what our age or stature in life. You know, we often hear about how Jesus is concerned for the poor and the outsider, the person on the margins. Nicodemus is not that. In fact, he's the opposite of that. He's the top of the food chain. Jesus is just as concerned for the wealthy and the privileged as he is for the poor. But in society, he knows the poor are often oppressed and forgotten. So he reminds those who have to remember those who have not. But God loves equally the poor, the oppressed, and the wealthy, and the successful. Whatever our earthly status, Jesus just wants for us to be open before him. And it turns out Nicodemus was open. Nicodemus had all the externals working for him, but it wasn't enough. All the prestige, the power, all the religiosity, all of it, and it wasn't enough. It didn't fill the hole in his heart. Something was chewing on his soul. Inside, there was a great need, a great vacuum. And Jesus told him what it was. Nicodemus, you need to be born again. He needed a new quality of life. Jesus was saying, you need to have something happen to you on the inside to make you a radically new life. Now, Nicodemus had some deep, unresolved longings. Anyone who has lived a totally legalistic life has got to be hurting because the pressure to try and to be perfect like that is tremendous. Knowing that you're not perfect and you can't possibly live up to that standard, that's a crushing weight to be carrying around. You might be the top of your class among the Pharisees, but inside you know your own failures, even if no one else does. And Nicodemus has lived a long time with that weight. He has lived that existence for so long, he's got some very deep needs. And Jesus puts his finger right on them. Now, at first, it sounds like Nicodemus was a little stupid, that he took Jesus hyper-literally. It's impossible for me to get back into my mother's womb and be born a second time. A lot of Bible commentators take that approach that Nicodemus was taking Jesus so literally. I don't think Nicodemus was that stupid. He's a top religious scholar. No, he picked it up. He knew what Jesus was talking about, about being born physically, uh, that Jesus wasn't talking about being born again physically. I think what was going on was that even though Nicodemus wanted this new quality of life, at that moment he felt it was impossible for him. 
And in that Middle Eastern way of approaching things obliquely, he goes along with Jesus's imagery. So what he's actually saying is, it's too late for me. It's too late for me. You, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. A, a leopard can't change its spots. It's too late for me. Nicodemus felt it would be impossible for any man who had gone as far as he had with his patterns so established and set. It was just impossible to go back into his mother's womb for him to start over again because of his position, his standing in the community. All those things, it would have been possible for him to be reborn in the way Jesus was talking about. He did not believe he could start over again. And I think there are a lot of adults who believe that about themselves. It's too late for me. I'm too far gone. I'm in too deep a hole, too deep a rut. I'm too far from God. I've been too long on the wrong path. God can't possibly love me enough to warrant that kind of change. That kind of deep change is just not possible. Is that what you've thought about your life? Do you believe that you can begin a new life? How hard it is to radically change. Maybe you think it's okay for others, but no way for me. I'm too messed up. I'm too set in my ways. A number of years ago, there was a 53-year-old man from Short Hills, New Jersey, which was near the town where my congregation was. He had lost his job on Wall Street, and he had been distraught because he'd been employed for a couple of years, was facing some mounting debts. He'd fallen into a dark depression and felt that there was no way out, no way through, no way for him to change, and he, he couldn't face it. So he did unthinkable violence to his own family. And then he took his own life by kneeling on the railroad tracks in front of a train. I just so wish he could have seen the power of Jesus to enter into his life and change him from the inside out. Lose the house. Lose the car. Lose the golf club membership. None of that matters in the end. Life is more than that. Jesus speaks the word to all of us that no one is too far from his grace. We all need to be born again, regardless of who we are or where we've been. God can radically restructure our whole framework for life, but you can't do it on your own. That's the point Jesus is trying to make. Only God can make that kind of change in a person's life when we begin a new relationship with him. When God enters in through Christ, then all kinds of changes can be made throughout a person's life, but it begins with a new relationship with God. Corey Ten Boom, who survived the atrocities of the Nazi concentration camps in World War II, once said, There is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. Here's the real score, Nicodemus. You must be born of water and the Spirit. And water has a double meaning. It's both a symbol of physical birth and of spiritual cleansing. In other words, we have to admit we're dirty. How hard it is to admit our need for cleansing and forgiveness of sin. How hard to face that for him. To let go of his spiritual pride and come empty-handed before the Lord. The Apostle Paul says in Romans that all our good works stacked up before God are like a pile of filthy rags. Rule keepers like Nicodemus have to get to the point where they recognize their best efforts will never be enough. What's needed is something from God's side of the equation, not your side. You, me, Nicodemus, we all need spiritual cleansing, that washing by the Holy Spirit. It's a symbol of God's power and forgiveness. It's not just turning over a new leaf, making more promises, but actually inviting a new power into our lives. God comes to live in us through his Holy Spirit. That's how we can be cleansed from sin. 
through admission of our need and then inviting God to dwell in our hearts through his Holy Spirit. You know, every other religion operates on the principle, if I obey, then I am accepted. That's what Nicodemus thought. If I obey, then I'm accepted. The weight is on me. I've got to get it together. I've got to follow the rules better. And then God will love me. This is the deep default mode of the human heart. I obey, and then and only then I am accepted. But I can't seem to do it. And I fail, and I fail, and I fail. And self-salvation always leads to failure, to dryness, to pride, to spiritual depression. Has no life-changing power. Jesus says, I am accepted, therefore I obey. God loves me. God can make me do. God can enable me to begin again. I can live a new life because God has changed me. How does God do it? Well, that's a mystery. Jesus says it's like the wind. The wind blows wherever it wants to. We can see the effects of it, but we can't do anything about it. Same is true with how God changes people through his spirit. If you try to intellectualize the born-again process, you're going to miss it. We see the effects of what God can do in a lot of people's lives, seeing God's power in transforming lives. Don't try to understand it all. I mean, I can hear Jesus saying, Nicodemus, for all your life, you've tried to understand everything, and look where it's gotten you. Don't do it. You don't have to understand everything. Jesus is telling us that's not the way to live. I mean, I don't fully understand the way the internet works, but I use it every day. That's a type of faith. I studied Ohm's law in college physics, but I really don't know what electricity is. I know it'll shock you. Nicodemus, it won't violate your intellectual capacities to trust in God's promises. God will make you new. And Nicodemus is still incredulous. How can these things be? Jesus offers a little well-placed, loving sarcasm. Oh, you're a ruler and you still don't get it? You know what I'm talking about? That old life of yours needs to be changed to the very deepest level of your being. Then Jesus claims his Messiahship. He kind of gets back to that original question. No one has ascended but the Son of Man. That's a significant statement by Jesus. Jesus helps Nicodemus with a little story from the Old Testament It's about a bronze serpent that's lifted up on a pole, and I I guess I should probably read it. It's Numbers chapter 21, starting with verse 4. The Israelites traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way, and they spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread. There's no water. We detest this miserable food. And then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them, and they bit the people, and many Israelites died. And the people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake, they looked at the bronze snake and they lived. Now, this is a story that would have been familiar to Nicodemus. Moses is leading the Israelites to the promised land. But the Israelites, they were always griping and always complaining. They forgot how they were whomped on in Egypt when they were slaves. God was taking care of them. God supplied food every day in the form of manna. But after a while, they thought manna was not so great. Manna in the morning, manna at noon, manna at night. You get a little tired of manna. 
They cooked it every way possible. They had manna casseroles, broiled manna, manna burgers. I'm sick and tired of manna. So all they can do is complain. And God was not happy with that. And we're told the Lord sent serpents, which bit people. Many got sick and died. And then God commanded Moses to make this bronze serpent set it on a pole. Someone gets bitten, they're to look at the bronze serpent, they get healed. Not your normal snake bite, tri bite treatment. All they needed was just enough strength to turn their head to look at the bronze serpent. That was all, and they would be healed. There was nothing that they could do on their own. They took a step of faith. They trusted that what God said was true. And here Jesus is giving a preview of what his death on the cross will accomplish. The bronze serpent lifted up prefigures what he will do when he is lifted up on the cross. In the same way these Israelites were saved by looking and believing faith at that brass snake on a pole. So people are saved by looking with believing faith at Jesus Christ lifted up to die on a cross. Lifted up to heaven at his ascension. This is perhaps the most basic truth we need to go over again and again and again. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean for a Christian to be born again? Let's talk about that phrase, being born again. People hear that phrase and it immediately conjures up a lot of preconceptions and stereotypes. Depending on your history and your involvement with various groups of Christians or what you've seen in media portrayals about born-again people, whatever, can you put all that aside for a moment? Whatever your feelings are about the phrase of being born again, all, all the cultural stuff, all the history, put it aside and look at it strictly from what Jesus is saying here in John chapter 3. Just look at it according to what the Bible says here. According to Jesus, all Christians are born again. Born again Christians is not a subgroup of Christians. If you're a Christian, then you're born again. Jesus says this so clearly. He says, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. And Jesus says it again a few verses later, you must be born again. That's a statement that applies to everyone and not just Nicodemus. Now that doesn't mean you take on some of the cultural expressions of people who use that phrase. But born again Christian is actually just a redundant statement. There is no Christian who is not born again. I don't care what your tradition, what your denomination, what your background, all the different strains of Christianity may use different language to describe what this phrase means. They might say you're born anew. You might say you, I've been regenerated. I've been spiritually, I've come alive spiritually. I've been spiritually awoken. I've been born from above. Whatever the phraseology might be, they all actually mean the same thing. A person enters into a new relationship with God through faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ lifted up on the cross. You must be born again. Being born again is a must from Jesus. That, that's a rare thing to have that kind of clear imperative from the lips of Jesus. So we need to take this very seriously. Being born again means to look with faith and belief at the one who hung on a cross and who was raised to heaven and who exists today and to see that deadly serpent poison of our sin is taken care of by him. Now, some people have a very difficult time making this move. It might be pride. Maybe it's an intellectual struggle or there are social pressures. Uh, some think they're too far gone, that their patterns are set in concrete. Well, think of that person bit by a snake. All they needed was enough strength 
to turn their head and look at the bronze snake on the pole and believe that what God says is true. And they were healed. God did the healing, all of it. All they did was look. It's the same for us, looking and finding within your heart the capacity to say yes to God, to say, Lord, doesn't make a lot of sense. I don't have a lot of faith, but I hear your word enough. I feel the pull of your spirit enough to turn my head, acknowledge I need you. Lord Jesus Christ, I believe I don't have a whole lot of faith, but enough to look to you. I give as much as I can of myself to as much as I know of you. Jesus, I look to you in belief and faith. And you're born again, born anew. There is nothing more exciting than a new birth. It's a firefighter I know who responded to a call about a young woman who was going into labor and needed to get to the hospital. His truck got to her before the ambulance and she was already in labor, nine minutes from start to finish. That's how long her labor lasted, nine minutes. And he was the one who brought that baby into the world. Wow. You talk about an exciting day at work. The mixture of excitement, relief, and joy to be there and to experience the privilege of helping bring another life into the world. How exciting to be there at a new birth. If you're already a Christian, you have a part to play in new spiritual births. You can't make it happen, but you can help it happen. By living your faith, by sharing your faith, by sharing your life with others, by praying for them. I wish every Christian would have the experience of being a spiritual EMT or a spiritual midwife, where you are part of the process God uses to bring someone to the point of being born again. Part of the process God uses to bring people to himself. There is great joy for you in seeing someone else spiritually reborn, knowing you were a part of how that happened. Well, how long did Jesus and Nicodemus talk? We don't know. But somewhere along the line, Nicodemus realized he was in the presence of the incarnate God. And he swallows his false pride and gives his willingness to be reborn. We know that because later in John chapter 19, verse 35, Nicodemus is the one who anoints Jesus's body in death. Instead of sneaking around at night, he publicly, openly identifies with Jesus. Nicodemus, an old man who was born again, born anew, born of the Spirit, born of God through Jesus Christ. So two points for reflection. Jesus knows what baggage you're carrying. He knows all about you. And if you've never taken that first step of faith, he really wants you to move in quite closely. Moving closely to you to empower you with his spirit to give you a new birth. With whatever feeble faith you have, acknowledge your need to be forgiven, your need for eternal life, your need to be born again, and move in that direction of personal faith in Jesus Christ. And then Share that with someone who you know is a Christian along the path, maybe a little bit further, who can help you take some next steps. That's the first point. The second point is for those of you who know you've been born again. Let me challenge you to move out in the direction of sharing your faith with someone else. Pray and ask God to use you in that way, to be intentional about being a spiritual EMT or a spiritual midwife. Share the good news with someone this week. Be ready to respond to opportunities God may bring your way. Gently, sincerely, conversationally, just kind of share your faith story. One beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. That, that's all it is. And experience the joy of seeing someone else begin a new life in Christ. You must be born again. I hope you have a great week. 